you will take your Bibles, please, again this morning to the book of Luke. We're in the sixth chapter, and our study today continues in this sixth chapter. The following events that we will be dealing with today and, and probably next week as well uh, are tied to the previous ones that we dealt with last week. And we can see that in the words here, the first words of the 12th verse, in these days. Uh, there's some discussion about where the Lord Jesus Christ was. We know that he was somewhere in, nor in the north of Galilee, uh, in, perhaps in the region of uh, Caesarea Philippi. And... During that period, there is also growing reaction to his ministry. And so we, we read here in that 12th verse, in those days, or in these days, he went up to the mountain to pray. And all night he continued in prayer, verse, verse number 12. So the first thing I want you to notice here this morning is this night in prayer. The exact location an identification of the mountain really is irrelevant, although if he's in the north in, in the region of Caesarea Philippi, is it possible that he was up on Mount Hermon? They're uh, doing spiritual battle with his heavenly Father in, in an all-night season of prayer. It's what, but it's not important so much as where the mountain is or what the, the, that mountain is identified as, as it is what he was doing there. It's what occurred on that mountain that's important. And only Luke records that before appointing his 12 disciples to be apostles, that is to be ambassadors for the kingdom, sent out by the king himself to represent him, Jesus first went up on this mountain to meet with his father and to pray all night. That he'd spend the whole night here, I believe, also testifies to the crucial nature of what is to take place next with respect to his kingdom. His effort and he knew that it would not succeed without the Father's help and blessing. And I think this is telling us that Jesus is about to enter a new phase of his brief earthly ministry. In this little brief, in this phase here, the new phase, he will now appoint and train those who were to succeed him. In the first part of his ministry, he, he establishes himself. He calls the disciples to him, and he has a great number of them that are following him. Now he is going to focus particularly on these, or 12 of these men, who will, as I said, succeed him in establishing his kingdom in this kingdom age. Mark also records this critical step. There in uh, chapter 3 of Mark chapter 3, verses 13 to 15, we read, And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired. 
And they came to him, and he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out demons. Interesting how he uh, emphasizes that last aspect. Mark here adds some important details that are not in Luke, and that we just saw there in verse 14. Their priority. He's going to call these 12, and he's showing them what their priority is to be. They are to be with him. All believers ought to recognize the necessity of setting aside time to spend with the Lord. In his word, and in prayer, and in meditation, in consideration of the things of Christ, they were first to be with him. And there can be no real ministry unless the servant of God has first been with Jesus. In Acts chapter 4, verse 13, it's interesting to read there that of the disciples now without the Lord present with them are serving him and, and uh, those who opposed them said then when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men. See, that's who the Lord uses. He's not using important people and famous people and I mean, that's our, our idea today. Well, if we could just only get that singer saved, and then uh, she's so popular with everybody, she could really be a testimony for Christ. Uh-uh. Well, here's this sports guy up here. He's so, uh, so well-known. He's a household word. If, if he could just get converted to Christ and give his testimony, we could see hundreds saved because of that. No. No, he uses ordinary people, common people, people not highly regarded. You see your calling, brethren, how not many noble, not many wise. Yeah. So we read here, the, that then when they saw they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. How in the world are these guys having such an effect? And, but here's the, and here's the answer. They recognized that they had been with Jesus. They recognized that they had been with Jesus. Only then will he send them out to preach and to have authority. Now, a second here, we need to notice the background of this new phase. It's twofold. First of all, they must be prepared to suffer persecution. That's one thing he's going to do, is train them to be, to be prepared for the opposition that they're certainly and surely going to face because Jesus Christ would face the same thing. They hated Christ, they're going to hate his followers as well. And then note the response of the Jews in the synagogue, we considered that last week, over Jesus' authority, particularly with respect to the Sabbath. That was one of their main things. 
And when he challenged them about what was lawful to do on the Sabbath, and then healed this man, uh, his hand here, who had, what was previously withered and atrophied, there we saw that in verses 6 through 11, what was the response of the, of the Jews? They were furious. A miracle was performed in their face. You would have thought that they would have had wonder and amazement leading to their fear of God. No. They did not want Jesus, who was the Lord of the Sabbath, to be Lord of the Sabbath. They were livid with rage. This Greek here is very clear and very strong. They weren't just a little upset. They were livid with rage. And that provoked them then to discuss how they might get rid of Jesus. This anger would only grow in intensity until they eventually crucify him. Therefore, Jesus recognized the need personally to draw strength and determination from his father as he faced this adversarial drive to destroy him. He understood the hostility that would that uh, this hostility was that was also fulfilling a purpose of the father. His disciples needed to understand that. And you and I need to understand that. And we need to apply Jesus' own response in our own relationship to Christ in our kingdom service. The second aspect here had to do with the crowds. It's interesting. Matthew has the crowds, he discusses the crowds there previous in the ninth chapter of Matthew and then the call of the disciples to apostleship in the tenth chapter. Mark does the same. He, dis he discusses the crowds previous to this and then uh, discusses their call, but only Luke here actually brings it afterwards, after he has appointed them. The scripture says there were great crowds, a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon. The fact that that's mentioned would also, I think, support the idea that they were in the north uh, of uh, Galilee. But can you imagine this? This great crowd of people who came out to, he to hear him and to be healed of their diseases and to uh, be cured of the unclean spirits that were troubling them. And there in verses 17 to 19. Again, there's a contrast here between the Jews, who is represented by the scribes and the Pharisees, and Jesus' response to the needs of the crowd. Matthew 9, and I pointed out that... Uh, he saw the crowds there before he appoints the apostles. And we read there, and when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Matthew 9.36 Jesus was the good shepherd 
We read there in John chapter 10, I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. On the, on the other hand, the Jews, describing here the scribes and the Pharisees, he said they're hired and not a shepherd. They don't own the sheep. And when they see the wolf coming, they leave the sheep and flee. And the wolf catches the, the sheep and scatters them. That, that really is based upon the Old Testament prophets who also raised this issue of Israel's spiritual leaders failing to be God's shepherds to the people. And it, for example, one here in Isaiah addressing the irresponsible leaders of Judah, God, God declared through Isaiah, the dogs have a mighty appetite. They never have enough. But they are shepherds who have no understanding. And they have all turned to their own way. Each to his own gain. One and all. No exceptions. That's Isaiah chapter 56 verse 11. What would he have to say, I think, to many modern pastors who seem to be more interested in their personal resumes than in serving Christ's sheep. Ah. The apostles and the elders who followed them must be faithful. They must faithfully serve the great shepherd of the sheep as true under-shepherds. So we read there in 1 Peter chapter 5, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness under uh, of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, as the Jews were doing, but eagerly, not domineering, as the Jews would do, over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive an unfading crown of glory. This takes us then to the second thing, the appointment of the apostles. Of the many disciples who followed Jesus, he chose among them twelve, the number of authority by divine appointment. Again, notice Mark, excuse me, Matthew 9.28. Truly, I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man, and remember that reference here is to, obviously, to Daniel 7. When the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me, disciples, will also sit on twelve thrones. That's a symbolic number. Judging the twelve tribes of Israel. These twelve will will, uh, were to demonstrate this royal authority in the kingdom as designated by their Lord. The twelve were appointed here, it says, to be apostles. We need to consider that for a moment. 
A disciple is a follower of Christ, of which there were many. However, there were only 12 apostles from the Greek apostolos. It's comprised here of a prefix, apo, meaning before, and, or out of, or from, and the root, stello, which means to send, to send out from. An apostle then is one sent out with authority from the one who has the ultimate authority to represent that one, the king. They were to be his ambassadors representing him. Apostles. The, first, the very first apostle in the scripture in the New Testament was Jesus himself. He was sent by the Father. We read there in John chapter 5, verse 30, I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. I'm, I'm, a, I'm also an apostle. I'm sent out from the Father, and so it's not my, it's not to do what I want to do. It's not my own things. It's the will of the Father. What is his will for me? The Pharisees responded, when Jesus said that, says, we believe in God, we believe in the Father, but you we reject. So, Jesus' resp uh, re response to them then was very simple in verse 23, 5.23, says, whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Do you understand the seriousness of your situation here? The Father sent me to you, and you, you reject Him, and yet you claim to honor the Father? You can't be honoring the Father, because you've rejected me. This authority from the Father was, in turn, transferred then to His twelve apostles. So they functioned in a unique role in the founding of the church. And I would argue very strongly that no office in the church today has of apostolic authority but is granted in the New Testament. And it's demonstrated in the New Testament. The, the, uh, we should note, and I, I want to explain this a little bit because this is brought up as an argument, that in the New Testament there are those who are designated associates uh, of the twelve are referred to as apostles. For example, Barnabas in Acts chapter 14 verse 14 is called an apostle, Barnabas. So this has led some then to argue that there should be apostles in the church today. And I've heard that argument. The problem with the church today is there aren't any apostles. Where are the apostles? Well, don't you think that's God's business? If he wants apostles? But here's, here's the problem. The issue here is, is that Jesus used a common term, apostle. But he also applied it to a specialized ministry. In the establishing of his church kingdom in the world, 
that would result from his death and resurrection. So we would I, I would argue that we should we would call these twelve the capital A apostles. They were unique. And only those people can be called true apostles. We could call, even today though, we could call missionaries apostles because they are sent out by the church to carry the gospel and the kingdom throughout the world. But Jesus appointed these capital A apostles at and they are special and no one succeeded them because we read there in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 20 that the church was built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. We only need one foundation. We don't need to lay the foundation again. And thus... The church, established church no longer needs these capital A apostles. So let's consider them, though, here for a moment. He appointed uh, those, and they're named. Simon Peter, his brother Andrew, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, uh, the son of Alphaeus, uh, Simon the Zealot, Judas, the son of James, and then Judas Iscariot, who was the traitor. Now notice that. One traitor out of the twelve. Jesus chose him, and he knew before he ever chose him that he was a traitor. And, it, and there's an interesting parallel between that and the twelve tribes of Israel. There was a tribe in Israel was also a traitor. The tribe of Dan. Just... I'm not, I won't go into that this morning, but uh, the tribe of Dan. Judas Iscariot was replaced in Matthew, or excuse me, Acts chapter 1, verse 26, by Matthias. Although we know nothing more about him, nothing is said about him, no, not, scripture get, get, he didn't write any scripture and uh, we don't have any details about his ministry after that. But we do see in Acts the call of Paul who was born out of due season which has led many to believe that, that uh, Matthias was the disciples' choice <laughs> even though it says they cast lots and the lot fell to Matthias. But Paul was God's choice. And he became uh, a great apostle and author of much of the New Testament. So these joined, these twelve joined the Lord on the mountain to receive this appointment. And when they came down from the mountain, they received instructions. Upon the mountain for the appointment, down from the mountain to receive instructions. And that's what we have in uh, beginning with verse 20 and, and through the rest of this chapter is Jesus' uh, instruction to them. What follows here has often been confused with the Lord's Sermon on the Mount. 
And some have said, well, yeah, it, uh, in Matthew chapter 5 through 7, it's the Sermon on the Mount. But here we read that he came down from the mountain and stood on a level plain. So that, I call it the Sermon on the Plain. I don't believe these are two are the same, although there's a great deal of similarity. But there's also a great deal of difference. For example, as I said, when he came down from the mountain, he was met by a great multitude of people from as far away as Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, which were Gentile cities. Matthew's was held in Judea, not in Galilee. And he went up on a mountain to teach them. Luke also records that the great crowds came to him, some to hear, and some came for healing, and some troubled with unclean spirits who were cured. And power went out from him, and he healed them all. There, according to verse 19. And although some things are repeated, I think, the overall message is quite different, and it, is, it was clearly directed to the disciples. And I would also argue that the Sermon on the Mount was, was uh, directed to the disciples. But a careful reading of both of these sermons will show uh, a contrast here uh, that Jesus was contrasting the religious leaders with that of the true prophet, uh, prophets of God. So there's two kinds of prophets. And we see that here with the Beatitudes and the Woes. The Beatitudes and the Woes. This sermon actually contains five parts. And as I said, I'm not going to deal with them all this morning. We'll pick that up next week too. But the first is the blessings and woes for prophets. The second is the superiority of love and forgiveness over mere rule keeping insisted by the Pharisees who condemned all who did not keep their rules as the Pharisees assumed that they did or they believed that they did. They're hypocrites or wanted you to believe that they did. And then thirdly here, it's actually only four parts. The uh, evidence of true faith there in uh, verses 43 to 45 what what is what's true faith look like? And I'll be preaching on that. And then number five, the necessity or number four, excuse me, the necessity of building on the right foundation. Verses verses forty six to forty nine. So this message, then I'm only going to cover the first part, and I'm really not even going to cover that so much. But let me just finish it up by emphasizing a couple of things here. This comparing of the religious leaders of the Jews with the true prophets of the kingdom of God. And we see this in verses 20 to 26. This comparison is demonstrated in the blessings and the woes. Unlike the Beatitudes of the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the poor in spirit, and the Beatitudes uh, of the Sermon on the Plain that were directed to the disciples. Blessed are you. Notice the difference. Blessed are the poor in spirit. So you, you make the application. But in this case, it's blessed are you. 
And he's talking to the twelve whom he has now appointed as apostles. And he begins with this, Blessed are you who are poor. Remember, blessed is a state of happiness. When you know that God is favorably inclined to you, and you feel the joy of His attention to you. When you know that all is right with you and with God. Blessing is pronounced on one who is poor. One who would, you'd normally think that it was just the opposite. In fact, the Jews thought that way. They thought the, ma the rich man was the man who was blessed of God. That he carried on God's blessing in, in, in the furtherance of that prosperity. There's some Christians that think that that's an indication of God's blessing today. The greater, the more stuff you have and the, 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 the greater is your elevation in the, in the society, the greater the blessing God has imposed upon you. But read the scriptures and carefully consider this truth. Blessed are you who are poor. And he's using this not in a in the strict literal sense. And we're, I'm glad for that because God has saved a lot of rich people. But poor in spirit. Poverty. Here is symbolic of, of spiritual poverty, of unworthiness, of possessing great humility and genuine modesty. Just so such a state. God brings one in that state. God brings one into this blessedness. When Jesus asked, was asked, Lord, will there be few that are saved? Jesus responded, Strive to enter in through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will enter or seek to enter and not be able. This is Luke 13, 31. Let me emphasize here, the term narrow or straight, as it's sometimes translated, describes a strict, a very restricted opening. You might be able to squeeze through there with your body, but you're not going to be able to squeeze through there with something with your backpack. You gotta, you're going to have to leave some stuff behind if you're going to get through that narrow slit. And I think this is the point. He uses the same language there in Matthew chapter 7, 13 and 14. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. The gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Yeah, nobody wants to leave their stuff behind. The spiritual link to poverty is demonstrated in the impossibility of one passing through this narrow restriction 
with his earthly baggage. Striving here, I think, emphasizes the, that earnestness of heart that only God can create in us. This earnestness to rid oneself of all that he counts to be of great value by worldly standards. Why are there so few that enter the door of salvation? The cost is too great. You know, I when when I was younger, and and, and it almost seemed to me like, uh, and I think they did this for the purpose of encouraging people to to accept Jesus as your Savior, so we can count you on our record here. But uh, there's really two levels of of being disciples. You can be a saved Christian, and you and you got your your uh, insurance, you'll go to heaven when you die, and then you can, you can live for yourself. You'll be okay because you got your card. Wave it. God, here it is. My decision card's got my name signed on here. Accepted Jesus into my heart. But then there were those who decided, well, you know what? I think I think I really want to live for Jesus. I really want to do what Jesus wants me to do. I want to I want to leave the world behind and I want to count myself as a disciple of Christ. So then there's that level. And even then there are various levels of that. You can do it a little bit or you can do it a lot of, a lot of bit. The Bible doesn't teach that at all. There's, there's nowhere in the scriptures. In fact, Luke chapter 14, verse 33, Jesus was very clear. Any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. You got to go through that little narrow slit there. And when you get past that narrow slit, you're going to find the way narrow and the grade difficult. It will not be an easy life. But it's worth it. Because the reward is great. And really only God can grant a Christian the grace to live that kind of a life. Peter acknowledged that cost when he said, See, we have left our homes and followed you. And I think what Peter meant there was we've left everything and followed you. And this was in response to the, to the issue here how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. And that's, that's literal. There's not a little gate on the city wall of Jerusalem, as some try to say, that, that a, a camel could get through it if he got down on his knees and tried to squeeze through it. That's ridiculous. No, Jesus meant here the eye of a needle. You can't put a camel through the eye of a needle, and it's impossible for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God because he's hoarding his riches. He loves his riches more than he loves Christ. Luke chapter 
18, verses 24 and 25. So the disciples then reacted with amazement. Who then can be saved? And what was the Lord's response? It is impossible with men, but it's possible with God. God can do it, and God must do it. Listen, listen to the testimony of the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter seven, uh, 3, verses 7 to 9. But whatever gain I had, I counted loss for Christ, for the sake of Christ. He's acknowledging, I went through that slit. It was difficult. Because I counted all as loss for the sake of Christ. Yes, indeed, he says, and I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. Remember? Jesus called those to be with him first, to be with him. And when we understand what it is to be with him, then we know that, it's, that nothing else is worth it that would hinder us from knowing him says, the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. I know him, now I want to be like him. I think that's what he, what, uh, he means there. To gain Christ means to be like him and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Wow. Is that your, is that your attitude this morning? Those who renounce all, then, what they would seem to be gained to them is what identifies them as they that believe in themselves to be for the sake of knowing Christ. And in other words, if you renounce all that you that you gain, that you call gain, what you really call gain is what you get from knowing Christ. And because of that, you will be rewarded by a place in God's kingdom. Then notice the next things. And, and I'm going to be very brief here. What, when you give up everything, what do you, what do, you do? Then, then you're hungry. So verse 21, Blessed are you who are hungry now. Notice, hungry now. Spiritual poverty creates spiritual hunger. And motivation, a consuming passion to seek and discover Christ and all that He is and His righteousness. Jesus is that righteousness. And thus, the true disciple desires Jesus alone. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes, Romans 10.4. This kind of hunger will be satisfied. Hmm. And then, true poverty also leads to brokenness. Blessed are you who weep now. 
being burdened with sorrow and with the present deplorable condition of the human heart, jealous for God's glory in a world that denies Him, grieving over the abounding sin and lawlessness all around Him. Ah, there's a weeping. There's a brokenness. I don't know about you, but boy, when I look up on, on the world, I am, I am disturbed. I want to see Jesus Christ honored. But look up. The days are coming for the brokenhearted when their sorrow will be turned into lasting joy. And then he concludes that until that day the truly spiritually broken will be hated and shunned because of their stand. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? On account of the Son of Man. I mean, here's the one that the Ancient of Days gave the everlasting dominion. That's what, uh, again, why I believe Satan hates Christians so. Because God didn't give the dominion to Satan. He gave it to Jesus. He gave it to Adam. And he caused Adam to sin. And then he tried to get Jesus to sin. And he failed in that. And now he's angry with rage. And he rages through all of those who follow him. Against believers in Jesus Christ. Because the Ancient of Days gave to the Son of Man dominion over everything and left Satan out completely. And he is mad. There, there's your answer right there. That's a simple, simplistic answer to the situation that's in our world today. What's he trying to do? He's, he's desperately trying to, to gain dominion over the whole world. Right now, the United States of America is the stumbling block. We're standing in the way, and he's doing everything in his effort to destroy this nation, and it looks like right now he's doing a pretty good job of it. Will, it, will, it, will he be successful? I don't think so. Because look up. He's coming, and he will destroy this whole thing with the breath of his mouth. Ah, says you're in good company when, when the world hates you, when Satan hates you, because rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. You see that conflict clear back in the Old Testament. What's Jesus mean to you today? Is he everything? Is he worth leaving all behind for? Is he worth the suffering? Is he worth the trial? Is he worth the di being discounted by the world? Yes. And some of us may even suffer 
the executioner's blade. But it's still worth it. It's still worth it. Father, I thank you for the truth of the Word of God. I thank you for these glorious truths that are set forth by Jesus. And for those who follow Him, Father, I pray that we may be counted worthy of this great army. And we know that only You can, can cause that worthiness in us. It's, nothing is too hard for You. And Lord, You've opened our hearts and our eyes to recognize that. And now we ask, God, that in Your mercy and Your grace, You will strengthen us with the resolve. We're poor in spirit. We're broken and burdened. We weep for the condition of those that are outside You. But Lord, we want to be triumphant in the end. And we know we will be because this is what's promised in Scripture. We keep our eyes on the eastern sky. Come, Lord Jesus. In the meantime, grant us grace to endure, to run the race with patience, the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, is now seated at the right hand of majesty. O oh, Father, count us worthy by your grace, and we'll praise you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.